Uh, if you have your Bible, why don't you go to Exodus 20. Uh, if you're visiting, welcome. Thrilled that you're here. We're in week three of a study through the Ten Commandments. Um, and I say Ten Commandments, and like, oh, yeah, I know those. Most of us don't even know them by heart, let's be honest. We know about them, but we don't know them as well as we think we know them. And so uh, our study over the next few weeks, as we go one by one, through these commandments is to try and figure out, as Jesus followers, what's the point? Why are they there? How do they fit? What relates to me? What doesn't? What relates to me but in a new way because Jesus has come? So I hope it's been fun so far. We're in, just in week three. You can catch up online. Uh, I would encourage if you come here or you like to listen in, you can just go to iTunes and our podcast is available. So it'll show up usually Monday or Tuesday into your uh, iTunes podcast, if that helps. Uh, well, let's, let's pray and let's uh, jump in. Lord, we thank you that your word is alive. We thank you that every bit of it is good and profitable for teaching and rebuking, correcting, training, so that we as men and women can be thoroughly equipped to do every good work that you prepared in advance. And so as we look uh, ahead and we move on to this next commandment, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're really about. And God, uh, in the end, we want to know who you are more than anything. And so help us to see in the text a little bit more of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we're working through the Ten Commandments. And if you missed it, what we did was we realized last week that there's a grid of five questions that you can ask. Because the Ten Commandments aren't a t timeless truths. They aren't moral principles. They're not intended to be put on courthouses and homes and schoolrooms so that we can look and say, follow those because that's what God wants. That is not the point of the Ten Commandments. They rather are the introduction to all of God's Torah, all of God's teaching, all of God's way. The Ten, in a sense, are the intro, the heart of who God is, so that all 613 commandments, 613, given to the people called Israel, they would set the tone so that God's way, his teaching, would be on their heart in the framework by which we know God. So let's just read Exodus 20. We'll read the first few verses, and we'll look at commandment number two through the lens of these five questions we listed last week. Uh, 20 verse 1, and God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, that was last week, and we saw the connection. Because God saves, this group should actually follow the God that saves. That makes sense. Well, what does it mean to serve and worship the God that saves? Look at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, a.k.a. there's no place where you should make an image. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, caps, L-O-R-D, remember that's Yahweh. It's not just generic being, that's me, Yahweh, says God. I, the Lord, your God, am what? A jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my Commandments. So that's what we're going to be uh, today. And 
I hope that you're taking this to heart. Every week, we're going to drive the same five questions to see how do I make sense of this and then how do I apply it. Question number one, in case you weren't here, we'll throw them on the screen. What am I supposed to learn? Remember, the way God spoke these laws to Israel are different than the way they are to speak to us. We don't throw them out, no, but we see them in a nuanced way. That is because of Jesus, they now become teaching points. All scriptures God-breathed and profitable for teaching. So the Ten Commandments teach me what God is like. Now the first commandment and the second commandment are meant to go together. And so what am I supposed to learn? Here, the setting sets it up for me. Look at verse 3. Don't have any other gods before me. Well, how do I know what that means if God's calling us to an exclusive relationship? Remember, this isn't God being mean. This is God pointing out marriage. Marriage, covenant, agreement, promises, commitments. Marriage is the setting for human relationships as God's relationship with his people is the setting for people to thrive. If you're going to be married to someone, that marriage only means something if there are real promises and real commitments. So God says, I love you. I've already shown my love for you. I'm bringing you close. Now, closeness means I want an exclusive relationship. And any one of you who's committed to a long-term relationship know that is not mean. That's right. If I commit myself to you, I'm calling you to commit yourself to me. What does commitment look like? It means don't make idols. Now, some of you say, well, Jose, well, we don't worship idols. That was like ancient culture and primitive society. Well, I'm going to suggest most of you are tempted and some are succumbing to idols right now. The only thing that's changed is you're probably not aware of it. Welcome to church on a Sunday morning. Now, the, the, the thing is, I have to define what an idol is, right? If I just accused you of potentially following the idols, now I'm not going to do that until the end. It's called cliffhanger. So we're going to wait for a definition of what an idol is, but let's just ask the question. So what I'm supposed to learn is exclusive relationship means don't have idols. Second question, what did this law mean for ancient Israel, right? What did it mean for them? Now, this is going to be a huge statement. Have no other idols, and then God defines that. He says, neither up in the sky or earth, animals, or under the sea or below. Don't make human representations of God. Why does God do this? What does it mean for them? If I'm going to apply it to me, I must see it on how it applied to them. Well, those of you who know and have studied the Bible or ancient history— Gods were depicted in, in human, animal, object form because the object or what that looked like was supposed to demonstrate what the power that they had. So in Egypt, remember the frog, the locust, all of those plagues were God judging those idols. God bringing judgment on the depictions of the Egyptian gods. And so for Egypt, uh, Egypt unfortunately led Israel to believe that, wow, there's some sort of power in these inanimate objects. And what God is saying is don't worship the way they worship. Hold on to that. We're going to define an idol at the end. But God says not only is it important that you worship me, 
but the way you worship me actually matters, all right? Now, when God was going to bring them from Egypt over to Canaan, here's the challenge. The Canaanite people worshipped different gods, but the same way like Egypt. So here they are. They're in the desert. They're moving from slavery, different types of worship. God's bringing them towards the land. But in the land, God knows those people worship the same way. Now, why does God say this? Because a bird can't fully describe him. A bull can't fully describe him. So unfortunately, the, the nature of an idol is that it takes the all-creative, all-powerful God, if you make an idol and try to worship where that idol is placed, it's limiting God because you can't describe him by one thing. Let me give an example. Describe America using one icon. Well, that's what a flag is, by the way. It's, it's a flag is just like this, you know, 50 stars and, and then the stripes, 13 col- like it. But can you, can you think of one object, cheeseburger? I mean, maybe that's the, the, like, can, does the object cheeseburger describe America? Somebody's saying, well, I'm vegan. Well, it doesn't describe my America. Okay, whatever the case may be, you can't get one. So here's what an idol does is it, it, truncates, it limits what America is because America is broader than one object. Well, that's just a small example. Imagine the creator of the universe. How are you going to depict him? So God says, the worship of men and women, the way they approach me is actually limiting who I am. Now, why would they do that? Because in their day, as in our day, they believed that the gods had local authority local power. Why did they worship on that hill? Because they believed that behind it was a power that controlled what was going on in that region. You see, the gods had limited power. So you worship this bird or this bull, and they represented real beings to them that locally led. They didn't believe in one creator of all things and one sustainer of all things. And so God says, You can't put me in a box. People want to put God in a box. By the way, that's not ancient Israel. That's today, right? God has, yeah, he can make the heavens. He just spins the thing, but now it's up to me to run my life. God is there, but he's limited. Let me ask you, have you put God in a box? Have you tried to make God smaller than he really is? When we do that, that becomes the temptation and the heartbeat of what it means to follow an idol. God is supreme and bigger, and idols make him seem small when he is anything but small. Yahweh is different. That's what God is saying. I am different, therefore the way you approach me matters. Now what's an idol? We'll wait to the end. Why did God give it? The third question. Why God give The law. Now for us, I'll confess, this is a little little bit harder to grab because in the West, we don't mostly worship by bringing food or incense, candles, flowers to idols. Most of us don't do that in Western culture. But if you go to to Eastern culture, if you've been to India, you go to Korea, you go to Japan, you go to many places in the world, 
the worship, using idols as a tool for worship, is prevalent all around the world. So for us, I get it. If you're born and raised in America, if you haven't traveled, if you have no passport or no stamps, this is a harder concept to grasp. For most of the world, this is not a hard concept to grasp. But here's, here's what I want you to know. Let's assume you have ne- no experience. I've been to India, and I have watched people who are hungry put food at the base of an idol while they do not eat. Out of honoring the gods. You say, well, why would they do that? See, because idolatry at its heart is about more than object worship. We're like, oh, thank God we're not like that. It is about more than object worship. Idolatry is an entire system of belief. Idols and idol worship are part of a worship system, just like you have a worship system. Your worship system may involve, and I'm going to make an assumption, coming to church on Sunday. Um, maybe dressing differently on Sunday, maybe acting differently on a particular holy day, maybe before a meal saying a prayer, maybe avoiding some things at some times because that's what your religious system says to do. All of us have a religious system. And so idol and idol worship is a system. Now let me give you three things about the system that are going to help you realize the connection between ancient idolatry and modern idolatry. By the way, idol worship has not changed, just the spin. Now, what are the three things? And they're going to sound relatable. Money, sex, and power. In ancient idol worship, it was about money. You see, meat was expensive in the ancient world. So almost the only time you would eat meat, catch this, when you go to to sacrifice to the idol, you sacrifice an animal, you never waste it. So that's the time that you eat meat. And even in the time of Jesus, most of the restaurants or butcher shops started at temples because you sacrifice an animal, offer part of it the fat, the part you wouldn't eat anyway. You burn that before the God, but then you take the good meat and you enjoy it. So in ancient culture, you, you enjoy the whole idea of pigging out. It has to do with idol worship. You extravagantly give your money by sacrificing this and you eat and you drink because if you throw a party for the gods and everyone eats well and everyone drinks till they're drunk, you're honoring the gods. So it's not just about statues. It is about how you spend your money. Ouch. Idolatry has to do everything to do with money. It has to do with sex because sex and pleasure in the first century made its way into idol worship. So there was temple prostitution at many of the gods because they believed that if you give yourself over and satisfy that passion, it will stimulate the gods in heaven. And when they mate in heaven, when they have sex in heaven, it will bring fertility or blessing. Your, your wife's womb will be opened up at home after having sex with the prostitute at the temple. Your crops will flourish. Your animals will thrive. It had to do with money and sex and power. And and here's where this comes into play for us. Idol worship at its heart was about taking the, the object and bringing God with you. So you had your family idols. Your family idols stayed in your house. Here was the belief. 
I can bring God into my situation. If I, if I offer a little flower to this God in my home, it guarantees the, the God must be where I am. If I honor the idol, I'm honoring the God. The God has to be in my situation. It's about bringing God to be with you. So you'd carry your idols into battle. You'd bring your idols into work. In the end, catch this. Idol worship is about you being in control. You, by the way you spend your money, dictate what God does. You, by the way you express your sexuality, bring God down to where you are. By the, by the placing of your idols, by the worshiping and care of your idols, you are bringing God into your world. Now, so hear the contrast. Yahweh, the creator God, says this entire system where money and sex and power is all driven by the individual, in a sense, you move the hand of God. God says, I am not like that. Most of idol worship was immoral. As a matter of fact, in the system, little to no space is given for how someone actually lives their life. If you pay God off, you can get God to do what you want. So what's an idol today? Some of you are already making, I, I see by your frown, you're making the connection. Can you pay off God in this system of worship? Yes, you can. But God says, you can't pay me off. So notice the framework of the system. God says, don't have any of the idols, and following God is costly. If you keep reading the 613 laws, they're going to have to worship God at a specific place. You can't bring God into your situation to force the hand of God. God says to all of Israel, three times a year, you must come to me. You come to my house. You come in this way. And by the way, it's very costly to follow God. In a sense, you get to drive it in an idol worship system. In God's system, in Yahweh's system, you don't get to drive it. You bring this sacrifice in this way at this time because God wants us to see him for who he is. Remember, in the Ten Commandments, we get to see what God is like. And God's not someone we manipulate. God's not someone that is, his hand is forced by us. Rather, he's above all. So you don't come to God as you please, says Yahweh. That's what the pagans do. Can we pay off God? Can we get God to do what we want? Well, what does this reveal? Number four, fourth question. What does this law reveal about God's heart? Let's catch this. I'm going I'm to define idolatry at the end, but these questions drive to the definition. What does this law reveal about God's heart? The first two laws are about God's faithfulness. They're actually about the heart of God's faithfulness. Remember at the beginning of verse 2, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. The law is not the way that we get to earn God's favor. I, I got to drive it every week. Following the Ten Commandments does not set you up to be accepted by God. Rather, God accepts a people who are broken and then says, I want to remake you. Follow me. If you follow my way... You will live like a child of God. So they're not the do's and don'ts. They're rather the character of God. And if we follow into his character, we get his blessing. But then there's this strange thing here, which at a first reading makes God, our God, sound like an egomaniac. Let's read verse 4 again. Don't make an image in the form of anything in heaven, above the earth, beneath it, waters below. 
Don't bow down to worship them. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. That just sounds weird. Hi, my God's jealous. Well, that just makes God sound fickle. For us, most of the time, jealousy is a bad thing, right? Except when you're in a long-term love foundation relationship. Because I love my wife, I'm jealous for her. That is, if you try to make moves on my bride, I will take you out. (laughs) And no one here would judge me for that. Because me, I've committed my life to her. She's committed her life to me. I When God says he's jealous, that's what he's talking about. I've given myself to Israel. I've given myself to my people. I want them to show my blessing. Therefore, anyone trying to stop my people from experiencing my blessing, I'm jealous for them. That is, I'm against the idols because the idols want to drift these people from my presence. They want to make following God a game. They want to make following God human-centered rather than God-centered. So God says he's jealous. Now, what is jealousy like? Now, this is, God has been misunderstood by this next line. So let's clear this up. I'm a jealous God. Now, what is God's loving jealousy like? He defines it. Punishing the children, which sounds horrible, right? So God's really loving. So the way he shows his love is he punishes his kids. Okay, that, that just sounds like a God. I don't, want to, I don't have anything to do with that God except when you understand the relational context. Because I love my children, I want to see them thrive. And because I want to see them thrive, sugar at 11 p.m. is off limits because they need their rest on a school night. Now, my kids are younger, so he's like, so what? For my kid's scenario, I, as a loving parent, know a better way And I want my kids to walk the better way. So am I bad for punishing my children? Okay, like that was not a trick question. I am very concerned. (laughs) Like, oh, no, it's the most, the most, you want to know the most horrible thing you could do as a parent? Do nothing. That's not love. Well, I don't want to inhibit them from finding their way. They're 10. They don't know their way. So I lovingly move them towards the direction of blessing. So what is God's affectionate love, his jealous love like? Punishing, so there is punishment. The children of the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So you're saying, Jose, God punishes my kids, my grandkids, and my great-grandkids if I hate God? No! That is not what it says. Who says, yeah, I just read it. That's exactly what it says. Read the whole thing. But, verse 6, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's just play this out. So if you love Jesus, I don't even know what your thousandth child would be. Like this kids, great, you know, grandkids, great grandkids, great, great. Great to the thousandth power? I don't even know. So if you love Jesus, God's guaranteeing that a thousand generations from now, those kids are going to experience your blessing. Is that what God's saying? The answer is no. 
So what is happening here? God uses language to describe his love. I need you to catch this. The key. Punish is to the third and fourth. Love is to the thousand. God is using poetic language to say how rich his love is. His love, by the way, love here is covenant-keeping love. Relational keeping love. God's love is so much bigger than the reality of his punishment. You want to know the heart of God. The heart of God is in the Ten Commandments. So it is not, it is not saying that if you disobey God, he's going to put a curse on your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids, and that curse needs to be broken. I've actually heard that taught in its absolute absurdity and a misreading of the text. I got this curse on my family because my grandfather was this, and therefore I am cursed. That is not what God is saying here. What God is saying here is, yes, when there's disobedience, God in his love has to weed out disobedience and unrepentance so that the next generation will know the heart of God. But anyone who follows Jesus experiences not punishment, that's short, but his love. His love is deeper than his punishment. His love is way more powerful than the momentary steps to bring you back to his heart. The way I know this, you say, how do you get this reading? I have read Judges and Kings and Chronicles. And when you look at Joshua, Judges, 1st and Kings, 1st and Chronicles, you see this play out. When a when a father is disobedient to God and is the king, everyone experiences horrific circumstances. When the king turns his heart back to God, his son sees what rightness with God is like, and he has an opportunity to see all the people thrive. Blessing comes to the people when the leadership down follow God. And you know what? Things go horrible when they don't. So if you read Kings, you will see sometimes a father and son both honor God. And it's blessing, blessing, blessing. And then that child doesn't. And it leads to horrible scenarios for the people of God. But the moment anyone turns back to God, read Kings without fail. Every time someone turns back to God, God takes them back. The heart of God is love. The heart of God could be judgmental, but it's not. The heart of God is love, and so he shows his love in a more rich and profound way than his momentary seasons. Now, I don't want to make light of God's punishment. And God is a loving God, and a loving God does put boundaries, and there aren't consequences. And yes, sin does lead to death. I'm not making light of that. But if you're looking for the heart of God, and you want God's word written on your heart, you will remember that God is willing to bless. When you and I are willing to judge, God's willing to bless. When you and I are willing to say, nah, they don't have a chance, God is saying, I will give them another chance. God's jealousy means that his heart is to bless and to bless and to bless and to bless. So don't distort this text and say God's jealous, vindictive, and he punishes. Yes, there are seasons of punishment but God's heart is to bless to a thousand generations. Is that helpful? 
I hope that's helpful. Now, let's apply this before we get to the last question and then apply it to our own life. Let's just apply this thought. What does this mean? This means that as a Jesus follower, my family past does not dictate my future in Jesus. My mom and dad are the first in my family to follow Jesus. And it changes everything. So I'm two of four, right? I'm the second son. That means all of my siblings, myself included, had the chance to hear the gospel at an early age and receive it and flourish. And it just so happens my older brother, younger brother, and sister are all following Jesus. All have issues. We all have challenges. None of us are perfect. But Jesus has chosen to bless. Now, it doesn't guarantee that our kids are going to walk in that blessing. It doesn't guarantee that. But it means that everything in the past is broken and the platform for blessing is available to everyone in my family line. So just because your parents didn't follow Jesus doesn't mean you can't excel in following Jesus. Just because your parents right now are rebellious doesn't mean you can't thrive in Jesus. Just because you're a Christian parent doesn't mean your kids will follow Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying? It means that God's heart is to bless, his heart is to bless. It means that if you've turned your life over to the leadership of Jesus, you are a radically new human being and everything is brand new. It means the gospel is the power of God to save. I'm slightly excited about this. Because this is the heart of God, not just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the heart of God in Exodus. God's heart has not changed and now in Jesus, he can feel that transformation in you. All right, question number five, we're almost done. What are the implications based on our New Testament understanding? That sounds like a complex thought. Basically, all right, if this is the heart of God, the heart of God is to bless, what do I see in Exodus versus what I see in Jesus? Now, here's an interesting one. Jesus has almost nothing to say against idolatry. Almost nothing. But here's why. Jesus came as a Jew, born as a Jew, born under the Jewish law. By the time of Jesus, it took a thousand years of Israel messing it up for them to finally realize, literally a thousand years in their history, idolatry is bad. <laughs> Worshiping idols has like never helped us out once. As a matter of fact, when we, when we got rid of the idols, God's blessing started to show up. So by the time of Jesus, they were hardcore against idolatry. The Jewish people were living in non-Jewish ruled land. Gentile means non-Jew. So the Jews are living in a Gentile-led country. But you know what? Even though the Romans were leading and the Romans were huge on idols, the Jews were faithful because they realized if we worship the idols, we are going to lose God's blessing and we don't want to lose God's blessing. It doesn't mean they love Jesus, but it does mean that they, they weeded out as a nation idolatry in their land. Now, they still were against Jesus, so they had issues, all right? But idolatry isn't one of them. So you don't see it in Jesus except once in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other. You can't serve God and what? Money or mammon. Literally, the idol of money, of possession. So you can't serve, but that's all you get from Jesus. But, so idol worship is done. No, 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 no. Read Acts. As the good news of Jesus starts to go from Jews to non-Jews, there was a real issue going on. 
a real issue because in non-Jewish culture, when you went out to eat, almost all the meat had been sacrificed to an idol. Now, I know this is a lot of background, but I want, I want you to get your brain around this. You, you couldn't go to a restaurant, so to speak. You couldn't go out to eat without chances are like 90% that that meat that they gave you had first started out as an animal sacrificed to one of the pagan gods. So you had Jews in the church who said, I won't eat any of that meat. They ate kosher. They knew where all of their animals came from to make sure we don't want to dishonor God. But then you had others who didn't grow up with that cultural background. They didn't grow up with that cultural bent. And they're like, it's just food. Who cares? Like, it's like flaming young, yum, eat. Like, what's the big deal? Like, oh, we're not like serving those gods. So the Jews in the church had a really strong conscience that said, don't eat that meat. The, the non-Jews were like, well, we love Jesus. We're not worshiping. We just got like it on sale. And so we're just, it's like Winco. Could it be good for you? But it's half price. I have no idea. But I buy it. So the temples became the butcher shops and the restaurants of the day. So what do I do? Now, look at how the church navigates this. I have not defined idolatry yet. I'm about to. But this is where it hits us. What, what, are, the, what are the teachings that we see? Acts 15, we'll throw it on the screen. Uh, it came to a head. What do we do with Jews and non-Jews? Look, look at their decision. It's my judgment, therefore, speaking of non-Jewish Christians. Therefore, we shouldn't make it difficult for non-Jews or Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them, abstain from food polluted by idols. So to those who weren't Jesus, uh, Jewish Jesus followers, who came from this other tradition, they're like, guys, you should have a sensitive conscience. Here's why. Abstain from food-polluted idols, sexual immorality, meat of strangled animals, and from blood. These were all cultural things that had to do with idol practice. For the law of Moses, a.k.a. the Ten Commandments, has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it's read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So early on, here's, what, here was, here's the deal. Look, you don't have to live like a Jew to be a Christian, but you do need to recognize there are those in the church who know the law of Moses and want to live with a sensitive conscience who don't want to live in idolatry. Christians can still worship idols. So in order to be safe, non-Jews, here's the tip. When in doubt, avoid that meat that's been sacrificed to the idol. Because you don't want to slip and start with one step. Because here's, here's the problem with eating at the temple restaurant. That's where the prostitutes are too. And that's where real worship is going on. But I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not engaging in that practice. I'm just in the room. I haven't even defined idolatry. But do you see where this is going? Well, I'm not smoking it. I'm just in the room where everyone else is. I, I'm not that drunk. I could still almost drive. Did you, you see the, the, the word of wisdom from the leadership by the Spirit to the church is, hey, some of this stuff leads to sexual immorality. It's not just about meat. 
It's about where the meat will lead you to. And God is jealous for your heart. So be cautious. All right, now that you're under conviction, a few more scriptures and we'll go. Romans 1. Let me like, oh man, I, I can't wait to get a sunburn because this guy's killing me. Use SPF. It'll save you. Romans 1, 23 to 28. The, what's the very heart of sin? So, so Paul reflects on the heart of sin to the church. And Romans is one of the best descriptions of what sin is at the heart. Uh, earlier in this text, Paul says everyone sinned, right? Everyone's rebelled against God, whether they know God or don't know God, whether they've read the Bible or don't read the, read the Bible. Here's how I know it. Although they claim to be wise, that's us, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. The heart of sin at the core is an exchange. Instead of giving your worship to the one who made you, I worship created things. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. It's interesting. Almost all the writers take us in the same direction. To sexual immorality or impurity. For the degrading of their bodies with one another. What you worship will take you on a path. What you worship will lead you in a direction. And you want to know, you want to know what you're really worshiping is notice where it takes you the next step. When you worship the creator God, where does that lead you afterward, usually to life? When you're engaging in other things, where does that lead you, usually to regret? If it's leading you to regret if it's leaving you empty, it could be at its base, there's idolatry. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So instead of worshiping the creator, people worship created things. Now, so in the end, 1 Corinthians 10, where, where does worshiping created things out of the creator, where does it lead? Uh, this was a real issue in Corinth because there were it was a huge worshiping city, a pagan city, with lots of temples and lots of gods. And the church struggled because some people would go to the temple, Christians, would go to the temple because their friend was having a party. So my friend, who's having his anniversary party, wants to bring a sacrifice to the gods. My friend isn't a Christian, but he's saying, hey man, it's my anniversary. Will you come to my anniversary party? Sure. Anniversary party starts at the temple where he sacrifices an animal to this God to say, I want to thank God for blessing my marriage. And the Christian wants to be a good friend and says, I go to the temple and I eat the meat, but I'm not worshiping like he is. And look at what Paul says. Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to who? Demons. By the way, I said, Jesus said almost nothing about idols. But guess what Jesus talks about all the time? Demons. He doesn't deal with idolatry in the statue. The Jews had taken care of that. But Jesus de deals with the root of it. And the root of that worship is demons. People were suffering because of demonic activity. People were bound because of demonic forces. The Old Testament often says gods. The New Testament often says demons. Whether you call them gods, whether you call them demons, frankly, I don't care. They don't follow the creator and they're leading God's people astray. 
So power is still an issue. So he says, don't, no, so he says, no, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participating with demons. And this is, this is his point. You can't go to communion. You can't drink the cup of the Lord. You can't come to the gathering and take the cup. And at the same time, the cup of demons. You can't have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we, are we stronger than God? <laughs> so so uh, here's what I wanted you to see. Here's the thread. In the Bible, idols have always been an issue. They were at the time of Moses. They were at the time of Jesus with a nuance. They are in the first century as people are trying to follow Jesus. And they are today. Now, let's go back to the first question. What am I supposed to learn? Like, okay, what's the teaching point? What is an idol? Okay, we're finally there. I know I'm annoying, but deal with me. What is an idol? Tim Keller in a great book. I would recommend you read it. It's like 150 pages of a small book. Uh, simple, but painful. Uh, Tim Keller in his a book, Counterfeit God, The Empty Promises of Sex, Money, and Power, defines an idol this way. It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. I want, just leave that definition on the screen. I want that to sink in deep. You may not be following a statue, but be led by an idol. Because when, when any object, when any activity is more important to me than God. When anything absorbs my heart, my attention, my devotion, I need this more than God. When I seek this thing, this feeling, this person, this place, this experience, because it gives me what only God should give you, that becomes for you an idol. Now, who are we worshiping, really? Look at his, his teasing out of this definition. Go to the next slide. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, I'll feel my life has meaning. I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Whatever you worship is your God. And when I worship these things, these experiences, these pleasures, at the expense of my devotion to Jesus, that becomes for me an idol. Now, what I am saying is what the Bible has said from cover to cover, that there's always competition. There's always competition. God is jealous. That is his hardest to bless, and he is the path of blessing. And so he sees us looking to things that he made. So am I saying if you enjoy something, it's an idol? No. I'm saying it can be. There was nothing wrong with them eating meat, but that meat led towards heavy drinking. That meat and heavy drinking led, led towards sexual promiscuity. So it's not the thing. It's where the thing leads you. And my friend, it is possible to follow Jesus and be strayed away by idols. 
It happens and it happened. It was in the past and it's in today. So money, let's look, think about ours. And then we're going to ask God to expose our idols, which is very dangerous in that when you ask God to expose the things that are drawing you away, he will do it. But almost always, you know what it involves? The cutting away of those things. Not because of those things. A block of wood is a block of wood. But when that block of wood is keeping me from devotion to Jesus, that wood has become to me an enemy, not a blessing. So it could be a blessing, but for me, it becomes an idol. When I said block of wood, what I was, I was talking about was a house. Some of you think like a statue. Your house can be an idol because you're so devoted to that piece of wood that will fade, but your devotion is there, and your money is there, and your heart is there, and everything is about keeping that house. And when God's looking at the, the amount of time and energy that you have, he's saying, wow, like it's, frankly, our house is a piece of junk anyway compared to world standards. They're not gonna last. They're gonna burn up. And what God is saying is, I want, you, I want the house to be a blessing where my presence is felt and experienced. I want the house to be a place where people can come and find refuge. I want the house to be like this place of love. And when people walk in, they sense my presence. But that house for you, it's sucking all your energy and all your resources and all your devotion. And frankly, you say you want me to be the center of your house, but the house is in the way. I'm trying to give you like the most relevant suburban America. I could go on and on. I can touch your car, your vacation dream, your boat. They can be a blessing or they can be an idol. And they become an idol to you when your heart needs it more than God. When you feel like you can't find God's pleasure without it. Do you see how dangerous this is? We live in a culture obsessed with money. We live in a culture obsessed with sexual satisfaction. The only thing that's improper for me to say in Portland is that you should have self-control. That's the only thing that's inappropriate. Because God made me to satisfy my thirst, my hunger, my cravings. You don't understand. God made me this way. Really? He made you to do whatever you want at the expense of someone else. Not considering their well-being, their pleasure, their long-term flourishing. So he made you to sleep around with whoever you want to. Not even thinking about their long-term good pleasure. Because it felt good to me. I had the right to do it. That's, that's, a, that's an idol. Because you're saying, my pleasure is more important than God's pleasure. And God says, this is a place of flourishing. It's you and one woman or one man for life, committed in a lifelong covenant relationship. You want to see flourishing? That's your garden. Flourish. And we say, but God, this garden's too small. I have needs, God. Do you see where I'm going with this? And then power. I'll really make you mad. You and I want to control God. So here's what we say. It doesn't matter how I believe and how I act. 
I'm just going to do the God stuff, and God's going to be okay. So I go to church, and I read the Bible, and I give some money, and I'm nice, and I try. Now, my lifestyle, that's between me and me. God's just concerned that I'm a, a nice guy. And if I do enough of these things, God is going to be for me. You know what that is? Trying to put God in your pocket and say, if I just follow a few rules, I can trick God into blessing me. That, my friends, is exactly what they did in Exodus, and it's exactly what we do today. Now, I would love to be fluff, but, but the commandments are the heart of God. And the heart of God is for you to break these idols. All right. The good news is Jesus defeated these on his cross and in his resurrection. You said, I'm saying, like, what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? The difference is now. We can have God's law written on our hearts. God's given us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, because Jesus died and rose again, he says, I'm going to send you my spirit, and my spirit will be the power to live the God-like life. Now you cannot use an excuse saying, I can't do it. Because God has given you his Holy Spirit. You're right, you can't do it. But the Spirit of God who lives within you can give you the power to do it. You can be enabled because now you have the Spirit written on your heart, the word written on your heart, you can walk a victorious life. Am I saying you always will know all of us go through seasons of idolatry? So don't feel like you're the only one. We all do. But in the end, you can experience God's flourishing by putting away your idols. What they did in Kings and Judges and Joshua, they would literally collect the idols and smash them. Because their form was distractive. It was a distraction. So they smashed their idols. And I would dare suggest to you that you need to smash them. Don't put them in the closet, in a box with a lock, and say, I'm going to keep you there. Because in your moment of weakness, you're going to break the lock and pull it out. We get rid of them. Did I just tell you to get rid of your house? No, calm down. <laughs> calm down. But get rid of your house obsession. And if that means selling that house to get a house you can actually afford so that you have room to follow Jesus, then in that case, I am saying, sell that house. Live free to follow Jesus. So let me ask you, what idols are fighting for your devotion? What idols? I'm not asking you if idols are fighting for your devotion. I'm asking you, can you call them by name? What name are they? Is it stuff, money? Is it sensuality? You're just being controlled by every urge. And that's not just sexuality. That's the compulsion to spend. That's the compulsion to have people around you because without people around you, you just don't feel love. Whatever Whatever sensual thing is driving you away from your love being given by Jesus, expose it so that God can bring healing. God wants to set you free from idolatry. And when those idols are removed, we can worship and experience that love to a thousand generations. I want that for you. I want that for me. That God's pleasure will be felt in my world, in my life.
And it happens when we expose our idols. Now, that was like harsh. But sometimes the toughest news is the best news. So what we don't want to do is be glib and move on like, okay, can we do the happy song now? I, just, I need a happy song because right now I feel like something may not be aligned. We want to sit in this for a little bit. To the point where you can just, by the Spirit, call that idol by name. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, resist that idol so that you'll fully worship God. I'm going to ask Brandon to come back, and we're just going to sit for a bit. I know you've been seated a long time. I Thank you for being patient. I promise you, not all of these commandments will be as harsh. But this one defines have no other gods. Idols keep me from worshiping Jesus. So I have to deal with this. In order to live out the others, this one is a big one. And so we want to sit and we want to ask the Spirit, Spirit of God, what are the ones vying for my attention so that I know them by name and I don't succumb to their power? But rather, whenever I see myself leaning in that way, I'm going to ask you, Holy Spirit, to give me the power to live as a witness to Jesus and to follow the way of Jesus. I'm just going to give you a couple minutes. Maybe put your Bible aside for a moment. And don't check out, but rather ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit, where am I being led away? And and if, if, if those come to mind, and they will for you, trust me, if you're honest, they will come to you. You may want to jot those down so that you know them by name and that you can, with your spouse, with your closest friends, with your sunset community, with your, you can say, you know what? These are the temptations. Come, come my way. Help me out. If you see me leaning this way, don't let me slip into idolatry. We'll be back to worship in a bit, but just sit and let the Spirit speak to you and When it's the right time, we'll sing.